the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I started reading uh, the Apostle Paul's letters when I was maybe seven years old. That's my guess. But I realized recently over this past weekend that I have spent nearly zero time considering him as a person who he was, uh, what his culture and vocations were like, what his understanding of the story of God was. And that's why this book is so profound to me, fascinating, readable, and I've come to think indispensable in the reading and understanding of the New Testament as a whole. We are very happy and excited to welcome to the Word of Him Airwaves N.T. Wright. His brand new work is called Paul a biography. N.T. Wright is one of the world's leading Bible scholars, is the chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews, an Anglican bishop, best-selling author, featured on many news programs, and the list of his uh, books that we love and know could go on for many a time. But uh, N.T., Tom, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. Good to be with you guys. So, Tom, let's start with the subject of your uh, your great work here. A Saul of Tarsus, an educated man, uh, a Jew zealous for learning and for practicing, who wrote only about 80 pages of correspondence total 2,000 years ago. But you say that these letters have generated more commentary, writing, I would say even more arguing than any other writing in the ancient world. Why is that? Well, it is truly extraordinary. And, of course, there's a, there's a shortcut answer, which is to say, well, God inspired him to write them. But that really doesn't touch what's going on. Paul lived at the convergence of three great roads of culture, the, the, the Jewish world, which you've mentioned, but also the Greek world. He, he, he grew up in one of the philosophical centers of the ancient world, Tarsus, and he knew that stuff and he engages with it. But he was also a Roman citizen. And he knew how to play that game as well and knew where the pressure points would come, what it meant to be a loyal Jew and then a loyal follower of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, um, in the middle of that culture. And so because we today live in multicultural societies, and indeed most of human history, that's been true for many, many places, um, what Paul was figuring out about how to be a follower of Jesus and loyal to all those Jewish traditions while at the same time living in this wider world. Um, These themes go on resonating, but obviously there's much more than that, and I think the much more has to do with Paul's profound awareness of Jesus himself. Uh, He talks about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's an odd phrase. Paul has somehow found himself identified with Jesus, so that he finds Jesus speaking and working and suffering in and through him. And I think that's what makes him so extraordinary and so compelling. And he clearly was a compelling figure in his own day. Not everyone liked mm-hmm. him. Not everyone uh, wanted to have him around. But but he, he was an extraordinary personality. And I think that 
jumps up at you off the page in a way that even the greatest of Roman writers, even somebody like Cicero or Seneca, who, who we read for pleasure still today, but they don't have the same impact. They don't reach out and say, hey, this is life and death stuff in the way that Paul does. So I think that's what's going on. So N.T., Talk about the the education of the man, because clearly he was a, a bright and a strong genius to to delve into what we talk about even to this day. So what about that? What about the education? I mean, clearly there was not a university system, but something ignited the genius that he is. Well, actually, there was a university system, and there had been for some while. But um, the, the, the main thing that Saul of Tarsus, as a young man, got was the Jewish scriptures, the, the, what we what Christians call the Old Testament. He absolutely knew them up and down and back and front and uh, could quote them, could work from them, not just as proof texts either, but the, he, he perceived the scriptures, um, Israel's scriptures, as a great narrative, a story of creation and cosmos, a story of God and humans, then particularly the story of Israel. And the great points of that from Genesis, from Exodus, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, and all the David stuff, the Psalms, he knew them in and out, and he was praying them and could use them so that when then he was confronted by Jesus, he didn't see this as something different. He saw it as something fulfilling. It was different from what he'd imagined, but it was fulfilling the ultimate purpose of those great stories. So his Jewish education was as strict as it comes in his day, as he says two or three times in the letter. But um, we don't know how much... Uh, what we would call secular education he had in Tarsus, but clearly from his letters, he knows the philosophers, he knows the Stoics, he knows the Epicureans. Um, if he's on the street arguing with somebody, he'll see where they're coming from and be able to say, ah, yeah, I know, that's that bit of Plato or whatever it is. We can see him wrestling with these ideas in his letters. And his knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures is not, I mean, this isn't a passing understanding or, you know, quoting a, a few verses here and there. He has, uh, what you said, he understood the story of God, right? Yeah. So talk about, I mean, I think that's perhaps the number one thing I've gained from your book is the fact that his deep understanding of the story of God is what allowed that Damascus experience to not cause him to start a new religion, but just to see things anew. Yeah, and, and this is a real problem for us today, both in Britain and in America, because the way we use the word religion means something completely different from what it would have meant in his day, and also um, neither of them correspond to what um, Paul came to believe and do, because for us, a religion ever since the 18th century is something that basically we do with our private life. We go to church and we read the Bible or whatever, but it's not something that's happening on the street all the time. It's not something that's woven into every aspect of, of life when you go shopping or when you um, go out for a meal or whatever. In the ancient world, pretty well everything you could do had a religious component to it. Um, and Paul was not, in that sense, starting a new religion, but w because Judaism was much more than what we think of as a religion. It was an entire way of life, um, and to be loyal to Israel's God for every aspect of life. And for, for, for Paul... Um, it was it was an extraordinary transformation that here is this great story from Adam and Abraham through Moses and the Exodus through David and the prophets and then the particularly the exile when all the story of Israel seems to go horribly dark and in Saul's day they're, they're waiting for God to put it all right again but they are not expecting a crucified Messiah to do it for them 
so that there is both a sense of fulfillment and a sense of shock and horror when on the Damascus Road, and as I've described in the book, I think that the way that will have happened is that Saul of Tarsus will have been praying one of the regular devout Jewish ways of prayer, which was to meditate on Ezekiel chapter 1, the chariot with God riding on the chariot with the whirling wheels underneath and so on. Lots of Jews used that in prayer. And then when your eyes go up to see the figure who's riding on the chariot, for Paul it turned out to be Jesus. I can see in that moment total sense of fulfillment and simultaneously a total sense of oh my goodness, I've been going in exactly the wrong direction. But that doesn't mean that he then stops being loyal to Israel's God. He just says that now I see the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has revealed himself in and as his son, Jesus, who has rescued us from the slavery of sin and has launched a new creation. And so there is this great story which has reached this climax, and now Saul finds himself, Paul finds himself, on the leading edge of the new movement in the purposes of God. And that's, that's why it's so exciting. We are speaking with N.T. Wright. His brand new work is called Paul, A Biography. Tom, then, are you saying that the reason that Paul was able to produce what he did uh, content-wise was that he didn't have that bold line separating sacred and secular, that that's what produced his integrated understanding of the world and why he was able to write as he did? That's exactly right. I mean, uh, the line between sacred and secular was being drawn in the 17th and 18th century in Europe and America. I'm actually doing some lectures in Aberdeen at the moment where I've been exploring all of that. It's very interesting, the history of how we got today into this assumption that there are these two things called sacred and secular. That wasn't how anybody in the ancient world thought, uh, except, interestingly, for one philosophical group called the Epicureans. We are now basically in the modern Western world, we are an Epicurean culture. Um, we don't realize it usually, but that's, that's where we've got to. Um, but for Saul and for the Greeks and for the Romans, there were gods and goddesses around everywhere. And for Saul, there is one god who has now made himself known in it as Jesus. And that changes everything. So, yeah, this is why it's difficult for us, because we assume that if he's talking about God, uh, well, that may, makes him a religious uh, character. It puts him on the sacred side, so there's nothing to do with the secular. But no, um, he is founding little communities. We call them churches, but they're not really like our churches, because they are what the anthropologists call fictive kinship groups. That means people who are living like family, even though they aren't family. Uh, and that is an amazing thing to do. People who, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, um, figuring out what it means to live as a new family together, supporting one another, and, and doing this because they're all worshipping the God who is now revealed in Jesus. That That is explosive, and it was scandalous, and it was deeply worrying to many people in the culture, but it was also so energizing that it produced the movement we now call Christianity, for better and for worse, which is obviously still energizing us today. Yes. So I'm sure it was a difficult throw, so to speak, because Paul essentially was talking to all the people who were worshiping the non-gods or the pagan gods and saying, here, come into this new relationship. I mean, just to even speak that and then to to breathe life into that, to, to invite people into that must have been very difficult. 
it's difficult, not least because what they had to give up. He says to the Thessalonians, I remember how you turned from idols to serve a living God. And because we think of religion as something that we do once a week or whatever, we don't realize what this means is that pretty well every day of every week, there will be something going on, or on high days and holidays, there will be festivals, there will be processions, there will be games in honor of some god or goddess, or indeed of the Roman emperor, who was divinized, of course, at the time. And everyone turned out for these. So if you were a Jew, you wouldn't turn out because you had official permission not to. The Jews were allowed by the Romans not to do this. But for somebody who wasn't a Jew, suddenly to stop going to these processions, these carnivals, these sacrifices, these games, everyone would know. Your neighbors would see. There's no such thing as private life in the ancient world. Everybody would know. And here's the bad thing. If people stopped worshiping the gods in a city or a town, they would be suspect if any bad things happened, if there was a fire or an earthquake or a plague. Oh, it's because you people stopped worshipping. And so the Christians, by withdrawing from the pagan worship and simply meeting to worship the God revealed in Jesus, they would be socially outcast. They would lose jobs, they would lose business, they would lose friends, possibly family. And so that's why they needed to be an alternative family. The church was founded as an alternative family, partly because many of these people would have lost the family and friends that they had. So what about Saul's family that he came from, Tom? So you're you're talking about this radical understanding of community, but he also knows what tight community, he knew what tight community was. Absolutely. And we feel that at various points, particularly in Romans chapter 9, when he says he has unceasing sorrow in his heart because of his fellow Jewish Uh, people. And I am guessing, and it is only a guess, but it's a pretty clear guess, that he, that most of his family, probably his parents, his siblings, quite possibly if he'd been engaged to a girl, maybe daughter of friends or neighbors, and she may have broken it off, or the family may have broken it off, he's got this ache in his heart that there are people he has known and loved who now regard him as crazy and dangerous, and maybe some of his family did become Jesus followers, but we can be pretty sure from what he says that most of them didn't, and that when he talks about the Jewish people, these are not. this is not a sort of arm-waving general category. These are people he knows and loves. He can see their faces in his mind's eye. He can hear their voices in his head. And he hears, you know, imagine his mother shaking her head and saying, and you were always so clever and we hoped you would be a great rabbi or whatever it might be. And, and now look, now look what's happened. So I think that is a constant thing for him. And he sees that as part of the puzzle of the cross, part of the paradox of the cross, that the cross isn't just something that happened one off. It is a one off, but it now seems to be woven into what it means to be a follower of Jesus all the way through. Thanks for being with us today. We're very, very excited to introduce you and continue our conversation with N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is one of the world's leading Bible scholars, the chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrew, talking about his brand new work called Paul, a Biography. Tom, I want to talk about the Damascus Road experience that Paul, that Saul had. But before we do that, to set the stage, I wonder if you can tell us about the Saul's motivation in being zealous for this big story that he understood. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone wants to understand that mindset, 
they should read the book called 1 Maccabees, or 1st Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, which is printed in between Old and New Testaments in some Bibles, particularly Catholic Bibles, but so also others. Because in 1st Maccabees, it tells the story of stuff that was happening roughly two centuries before the time of Jesus, when the Syrians invaded and took over um, uh, Judea and desecrated the temple and instituted pagan worship in the temple, and a small band of zealous Jews got together and said, we're not going to stand for this, we're going to say our prayers, and we're going to start a movement of zeal um, in order to persuade Jews to be loyal to their faith, even if it means them getting killed, and to hope and pray that by this means, God will enable us to uh, purify the temple and to get things back to where they should be. And they succeeded, but they succeeded through this, this notion of zeal. And when they look back, it's very interesting, in the Old Testament, there are two characters who kind of model what zeal should be. One is Phineas in the book of Numbers, who kills an Israelite and a Moabite woman uh, with one thrust of the spear. And, and stops the plague, the moral plague and the actual disease plague, which is spreading through the Israelite camp. The other model of zeal is Elijah, who kills the prophets of Baal when they have the contest on Mount Carmel. And in Saul's letters, in Paul's letters, we can see echoes of both the Phineas story and the Elijah story that Saul of Tarsus had thought, now we're in a situation like the Maccabees, like the Syrian crisis 200 years ago. What do we need? We need somebody to do the Phineas thing. We need somebody to do the Elijah thing. And that's when he gets authority from the chief priests to go and scoop up these horrible Christians who are desecrating the faith and who, as far as he sees, are making it uh, less likely rather than more that God is finally going to redeem Israel. Hmm. And, so, of course, as he's doing that, that he then meets Jesus on the road. So when he is standing there as Stephen is stoned, he's not just a, a neutral observer. This, he feels like oh, this no. is his task, his mission. Exactly. This is what we have to do. These people are leading Israel astray. And if you go back to the books of Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if there are people who are seriously leading Israel astray, and particularly Stephen was uh, accused of saying that God would destroy the temple and that Jesus had said that, that the temple was to be destroyed. Now, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. So how could you possibly think that it's to be destroyed? And, and the law given by Moses was the divine law, the holy, just, and good law. How can you say that that would ever be changed? And yet, the early Christians saw that in Jesus, God was actually fulfilling his purposes, and that the temple and the Torah, the law, were, as it were, signposts pointing forwards to what God was going to do. But now, if God had done it, you don't need the signposts anymore. And that's the really scary thing that the fulfillment also means the abrogation, that the story has been fulfilled, so we don't need the things that were the signposts on the way anymore. And that's where the real scandal comes. N.T. Wright is with us. His brand new book is called Paul, A Biography. N.T., uh, take that a step further. So as uh, Paul brought people into communion with Jesus, they formed new communities, and these were very interesting communities, communities of forgiven sinners. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, in the um, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish world, if you are a sinner and need to be forgiven, sooner or later you go to the temple and you offer the sacrifice and you are pronounced forgiven or cleansed or whatever it is. And from Jesus' time onwards, that was something that you could get without going to the temple because Jesus was offering it. And Paul saw that what Jesus had done on the cross and then in his resurrection launched a new world in which forgiveness of sin was the DNA. If you came into this world, um, Jesus had already dealt with all that had gone before, so that you didn't need to go to the temple, and indeed the churches themselves, Paul says, you are the temple of the living God, because God's Spirit dwells in you, individually and corporately, so that he doesn't lose the temple theology, it just stops being one building in Jerusalem and starts being all these communities of people scattered across what we think of as Greece and Turkey and Syria. Paul, a biography, the author N.T. Wright. Tom, let's go back to the uh, Damascus Road experience. Saul of Tarsus starts out uh, on that road. He's zealous for God and his requirements. As you said, he's zealous for the story of God. He has the hope of the coming together of heaven and earth. This is part of his understanding, even to the point of his approval of the stoning of Stephen. But something happens on that road. And then when he arrives at Damascus, he's blind. He's shocked. He's experienced uh, some type of supernatural catastrophe. So tell us what happened. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm worried about the word supernatural because, again, that's a modern word. Uh, the word itself goes back to ancient times, but the way we use it today implies a division between natural and supernatural, um, which they wouldn't have understood. For them, uh, for the Jews and the early Christians, the whole world is God's world. God is in charge of it. God sometimes does things we don't expect. <laughs> but but if we call it supernatural, it's not over against natural. It's just that sometimes this is even more extraordinary than the natural world is itself. So, sorry, that's a riff which I have to put in on the word supernatural. But I, I think what happens then is what some of the great Jewish traditions were all about, that when you pray, when you wait, when you're loyal to God, then sometimes there are moments like the baptism of Jesus or the transfiguration when heaven is opened. And what is heaven? It's not some place several miles up in the sky. Heaven is God's dimension of ordinary reality, so that the world we live in is bi-dimensional all the time. It's as though there's a great curtain hanging in the midst of reality, which we don't see, but sometimes, and there are passages in the Bible which describe this vividly, sometimes the curtain is drawn away. And, oh, shock, horror, we see what the heavenly reality is, which is close right there beside us, and we just hadn't seen it before. And I think that's exactly what happens. Saul of Tarsus experiences a heaven and earth moment when heaven becomes visible to earth and audible, and he sees and hears Jesus right there. Um, This is beyond the experience and hence beyond the imagination of many people, but I've actually known people who've had experiences not totally unlike this, And uh, for for Saul, it's obvious that what was going on in retrospect was that he had to be stopped in his tracks quite literally and turned around, and God used him because he was an amazingly well-qualified man. He knew the Greco-Roman world, but he knew the Jewish traditions inside out. Just the man to be able to explain the faith to the coming generation. And uh, so I I think I, I like to think of it as a heaven and earth moment 
and Jewish literature has a lot of those, but this is one of the most spectacular. I want to read a portion of what you wrote about the Damascus Road experience. You write, uh, this is a quote, the moment shattered Saul's wildest dreams and at the same time, at the same split second, fulfilled them. This was, he saw it in that instant, the fulfillment of Israel's ancient scriptures, but also the utter denial of the way he had been reading them up to that point. So, Tom, I love that quote because it brings together the idea that this was a man who had a full-throated understanding of that story of God, but he had seen it from the wrong perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is Paul's later critique of his fellow Jews. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for Mm -hmm. God, but it is not according to knowledge. And that's in Romans 10. And I think he's talking about his own former self, when he had a zeal for God, but he didn't realize that his zeal was leading him in totally the wrong direction. And here's the thing, that when Jesus is revealed as being raised from the dead, and this is the crucified Jesus, then this must mean he really was and is Israel's Messiah. And he has done what the true king will do, namely defeat the powers and rescue his people and rebuild the temple in a new sense. And so this must be the fulfillment of all the promises to David and Solomon, must be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, but it means it in a way which no Jew of Saul's day had seen coming. They had seen, we know it from many Jewish sources at the time, they wanted God to get rid of the Romans, to establish Israel as a free people in their own land, and for the glory of God to come and dwell in the temple in Jerusalem like it had done in Solomon's day. And instead, God comes to dwell in the human temple called Jesus of Nazareth, and then in the human temple called the church by the Spirit. And so it's both fulfillment and shock horror um, as I say, abrogation. Tom, it's it was so interesting to me reading this. I never I never expected that Saul of Tarsus or Jews who thought like he did would would have expe- would have looked at the exile as being not over. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you need to go back and, if I may say so, and read Daniel chapter 9. A very popular chapter in the first century, as we know from the historian Josephus, he tells us that the Jews in the middle of the first century uh, were very struck by, he says, an oracle in their scriptures which predicted that at that time a world ruler would arise from their country, in other words, from Judea. Now, there's only one passage in Israel's scriptures which tells you that time, and it's Daniel chapter 9, because in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is in exile in Babylon. He prays and says, we thought the exile was supposed to be 70 years long because Jeremiah said so, so please can we go home now? And the angel says, basically, I've got good news and bad news. Yes, the exile will be over, but it won't be 70 years. It'll be 70 times 7 years, 490 years. Now, The book of Daniel, probably put together over a period of years itself, but it was being read in the first century as the way of saying this time of Israel's desolation, when the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Egyptians, then the Syrians, and now the Romans are ruling over us. This is a kind of long extension of exile. And if you look back at the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about what's going to happen when the exile is over, it's clear in the first century that none of them have come true. 
um, read Isaiah 40 to 55 and say, would a first century Jew say, yes, of course, that happened ages ago? No, they're still waiting for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And so then when you get a Messiah, or a would-be Messiah, being crucified and then being raised from the dead, suddenly the lights go on. This is what the end of exile really looks like, because exile was not just Israel's political enslavement, it was the exile of death itself. And now somebody, Israel's representative, the Messiah, has come back from the dead. This is the end of exile. And there's lots of end of exile stuff, which is about the kingdom of God, which is, of course, what Jesus talked about all the time and what Paul then implements. So this is difficult for us in the modern West to get our heads around, because it isn't an abstract, timeless salvation. It's a, it's a long divine plan, which is now fulfilled. N.T. Wright is with us. N.T., one of the world's leading Bible scholars, is the chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews. An Anglican bishop and best-selling author, his brand new work is called Paul, A Biography. N.T., could you talk to us about the imprisonment of Paul? Why was Paul arrested? How long was he imprisoned? And of course, how did that experience influence his writings and his life after? Wow, that, that's a, it's a super big question. One of the first things we have to realize is that in the ancient world, prison was not uh, a custodial sentence. It wasn't that you committed a crime and were then sent to prison for a year or five years or whatever. Prison was where they put you when they were trying to figure out what to do with you, either before your trial or after your trial. And uh, so when you were in prison, you were waiting for a verdict of some sort or waiting for what was going to happen. But you might wait for months or years And then it might be death, it might be banishment, it might be a fine, it might be beatings, whatever it would be. That's the first thing to realize. Second thing to realize is, um, if you're, hello? Second thing to realize is, if you're in prison, they don't feed you, they don't give you anything, so your friends have to come and look after you, which is tricky if you're in a strange city and nobody knows you or they've turned their backs on you. So it's a pretty desolating experience. In the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, we see him in prison various times, but we suspect from what he says that there were other times as well which haven't been written up in Acts, but when he was imprisoned, and the reason he was put in prison was because what he was doing and saying was deeply, deeply subversive. He was saying that Jesus is Lord of the world. Now, everyone knew Caesar was Lord of the world. He was saying that through Jesus, we have these new communities where people live as family, even though they aren't family. Well, most societies find that quite disturbing and distressing, especially traditional societies that they'd have in the ancient world. So Saul was perceived as a troublemaker, as a rabble-rouser, as a, as a subversive influence. And so people trumped up charges against him, and he was in and out of prison really quite a lot. Tom, there's just not a, a fraction enough time to talk about all of the elements of this book. It's, so I, I want to get to this point, though, and perhaps this is an appropriate place to end. I, I want to ask you about how we in Christendom have talked, uh, conversed, worked with Paul's writings in general, because the church accepts them as divinely inspired, but they're also historical documents written by uh, an actual man at a specific time in history. So talk to us about how we balance those approaches and, and how knowing history is essential to honoring the inspiration of the canon that we have. Wow, that's a great way of putting it, if I may say so. I mean, 
the historical task is absolutely vital because as church history demonstrates, if people forget the historical context, they can take a verse or a chapter out of context and make it mean all sorts of things, which then you have to realize painfully later, no, it really wasn't talking about that. And actually, the church in every generation has recognized this, whether it's Jerome, whether it's Calvin, whoever it is, great scholars who've said we must be careful to get back to what was really being meant here. But here's the thing. As with the incarnation of Jesus itself, we only know who God incarnate is when we look at the incarnate God. We can't assume we know what it would mean for God to be incarnate and then project that onto Jesus. We have to look hard at Jesus in the Gospels and say, actually, that's what it looked like when God became human. In the same way, I have all my life believed that we, the reason we have the Bible is because God wanted us to have it, and God jolly well made sure that the writers wrote it. But we only know what it means when we actually pay attention to the specific texts. And that's been really my vocation throughout mm-hmm. my adult life, to study the Bible uh, as carefully and seriously as I can. And I was fortunate that I had a classical education from an early age, Latin and Greek and all that. Mm-hmm. And so I've just wallowed in the ancient history of it, but I've found as a preacher and a pastor that the more I've done the history, the more there is to preach Mm -hmm. about and the more resources I have as a pastor. So it isn't either or. It isn't that the history pulls you away from the preaching and pastoral task. It sends you back to it refreshed and refocused. Outstanding. Tom, I told you this before we went on the air. Um, I haven't been this excited about a book in a long time. It's I mean, it is a, it is a tremendous project that you've put together. I'm Personally, I'm grateful for it. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted, and I hope lots of other people will be too. Can I just mention, before we go off air, um, that there is uh, an online course which I've done um, based on this book, oh. which people could log on to and sign on for, and the, the courses uh, with other courses as well. They're at www.ntwriteonline.org. And there's lots of people been signing on for this course. The course has just been launched to coincide with the book. Wonderful. So if somebody wants to so go deeper into it, that would be a great way to do it. Outstanding. Well, I hope that many people from the Pittsburgh area will join you online, Tom. It's, uh, it's very exciting. Thank, Thank you, you always so much. We, we greatly admire and appreciate your scholarship and the way that you equip and encourage the Christendom here in the 21st century. Thank you very much. It's very good to talk to you both. The pleasure is ours. N.T. Wright, his brand new work is called Paul, A Biography. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.